0: Welcome to our third series of Freud and Focus, a podcast brought to you by the Freud Museum London, hosted by my colleague Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Rewers, where we delve deep into particular texts by Sigmund Freud. In this series, we're going to be covering Freud's 1930 paper, Civilization and its Discontents. Now, Tom, before we get stuck in, I'm just going to start by saying I'm very excited to read this text with you, as I know you've been reading it in a number of Freud Museum reading groups on Zoom, while so many of us were stuck at home during the pandemic. Tell me, how did it go and and how was it received by those who attended?
1: Well, uh, Civilization and Its Discontents was in fact the first text we read in our public reading group. It kind of really felt like an appropriate text for the times, actually, because, you know, we've all been experiencing plenty of discontent, really, haven't we, with our civilizations recently. Um, It proved to be a really popular text. We ran it a couple of times, actually, because it was oversubscribed. It's a relatively small book, but it certainly punches above its weight. One of our readers described it as Wagnerian in its scope, you know, and I think that's a really good comparison because... It really has this epic quality about it, with this almost kind of cosmic battle between the meta drives of Eros and the death drive. But, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because we've, we've got all that to come. So there is an awful lot to get through.
0: That is fantastic. And I hope that we manage it in five episodes. Um, I was looking over James Strachey's introduction in the standard edition for this, and he describes the main theme of the book as the irremediable antagonism between the demands of instinct and the restrictions of civilization. And the Frankfurt School philosopher Herbert Marcuse described this text as the most radical critique of Western culture and its most trenchant defense. Now, Civilization and Its Discontents was published uh, three years after Freud's famous critique of religion, The Future of an Illusion. And it goes down in his oeuvre as one of those most important analyses of culture and society. Tom, could you tell us a little bit more about the context?
1: Yes, the irremediable antagonism between the demands of instinct and the restrictions of civilization. The conflict between instinct and culture really runs through Freud's work. There's a continued kind of grappling with this problem. After all, what is a symptom, if not the manifestation of an instinctual desire that's been forced to find another way of seeking satisfaction due to the demands of civilization? At least that is one side of the story. It's the view that Freud elaborates in a work such as Civilized Sexual Morality and Modern Nervous Illness in 1908. But we'll see in Civilization and Its Discontents that this position becomes much more complex and far-reaching. You mentioned the future of an illusion, Jamie, and I think in many ways, civilization and its discontents can be read as an extension, or perhaps a development, of the sustained critique of religion that appears in that text. But where Freud, um, in the future of an illusion, is polemical, it's an unrelenting attack on religion, And the infantilizing effect it has on human beings. In Civilization and Its Discontents, he's much more nuanced. In a way, it's a more cautious work, more philosophical, really, and certainly more challenging for the reader, but I think ultimately more satisfying. The complexity begins even before we open the first page with the title itself Civilization and Its Discontents is. you think about it, quite a curious formulation. We're so used to the title, I think, that we forget how unusual the use of the collective noun discontents is. It has a certain association, I think, to the opening soliloquy of Richard III. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. But the German Umberhagen, as we learn from the introduction, is much closer to the French word malaise. Freud himself suggested the title Man's Discomfort in Civilization," which seems a much more understandable and direct translation. But Strachey writes that it was Joan Riviere who came up with the title We Now Have, which he describes as ideal. Memorable, perhaps, with its Shakespearean undercurrents, but also perhaps adding a sense of obscurity, a lack of clarity. This is perhaps comparable to Scott Moncrief's translation of Proust's A la recherche du temps perdu as Remembrances of Things Past, with its Shakespearean reference, which was dropped by later translators for the much more accurate and direct In Search of Lost Time. So complexity and controversy before we even come to page one,
0: well, I really like the the tone actually of this first chapter that we're going to be looking at. It, it's quite personal. Um, he sort of invites the reader, Freud invites the reader into a conversation that he's having with a friend, whom he's debating the concepts uh, that are in the future of an illusion. And in a footnote added in uh, 1931, the following year, Freud says that the friend he mentions is Roman Roland. So I'm just going to read the second paragraph of the text where he introduces their discussion. And if you'd like to follow at home, it's in the standard edition, 21, page 64. One of these exceptional few calls himself my friend in his letters to me. I had sent him my small book that treats religion as an illusion and he answered that he entirely agreed with my judgment upon religion, but that he was sorry I had not properly appreciated the true source of religious sentiments. This, he says, consists in a peculiar feeling which he himself is never without, which he finds confirmed by many others and which he may suppose is present in millions of people. It is a feeling which he would like to call a sensation of eternity, a feeling as of something limitless, unbounded, as it were, oceanic. This feeling, he adds, is a purely subjective fact, not an article of faith. It brings with it no assurance of personal immortality, but it is the source of the religious energy which is seized upon by the various churches and religious systems, directed by them into particular channels, and doubtless also exhausted by them. One may, he thinks, rightly call oneself religious on the ground of this oceanic feeling alone, even if one rejects every belief and every illusion. Tom, who is Roman Roland? And what is Sigmund Freud's view on the oceanic feeling?
1: Well, Roman Roland was a Nobel Prize winning novelist and a lifelong pacifist, whom Freud had been corresponding with since 1923. From the outset, the tone of Freud's letters is warm and at times passionate. Remarkably, their relationship, which was mutually enriching, was maintained because of the polarity of their respective outlooks, and to a certain extent, even their respective temperaments. In his first letter to Roland, Freud describes his recipient as being associated with the most precious and beautiful of illusions, that of love extended to all mankind. In a response to Freud's letter sent in March 1923, Roland sends him a copy of his play Louis Lee bearing the inscription To Freud, Destroyer of Illusions. One a creator of illusions, then, and one a destroyer, but both mutually appreciative nonetheless. Freud later describes Roland as an unforgettable man, to have soared to such heights of humanity through so much hardship and suffering. Whereas Freud's own humanity stems from a sober awareness of the innate destructiveness of human beings, so that love of mankind becomes a very necessary reaction formation. This exchange of letters is important, I think, and I would encourage our listeners to refer to them because they offer a frame for the whole argument of civilization and its discontents. It is in the letters that Roland's hypothesis of the oceanic feeling appears. The subjective fact of a feeling as of something limitless, unbounded, as it were, oceanic, which threatens to flood the critique of religion elaborated in the future of an illusion. How will Freud rebind this unbounded feeling? How will he attempt to dam up this ocean within the bounds of psychoanalytic knowledge? Through the letters, you can see how much Roland's position troubles Freud. He feels that he can't go on to discuss culture and society from a psychoanalytic viewpoint until he clears this oceanic feeling out of the way. What's important here is the fact that Freud explicitly states that he can't relate to this feeling. He cannot discover it in himself. I think there's a similar position in his Moses of Michelangelo where he admits to an inability to feel pleasure in music. Incidentally, music was another of Roland's specialities, as well as being one of the first things that come to mind when we try to think of experiences that are productive of the oceanic feeling. So the oceanic is a challenge to Freudian psychoanalysis. Freud can't allow it to be the fons et origio of the whole need for religion. He has to clear it out of the way and find the ideational content behind the experience.
0: Hmm. So if Freud sees the oceanic feeling as a challenge to psychoanalysis, how then does he attempt to address the challenge?
1: Freud's opinion of the oceanic feeling is stated directly on page 65 of the text, where he writes the following. The idea of men's receiving an intimation of their connection to the world around them through an immediate feeling, which is from the outset directed to that purpose, sounds so strange and fits in so badly with the fabric of our psychology that one is justified in attempting to discover a psychoanalytic that is, a genetic explanation of such a feeling. Key here is, I think, the notion of immediacy, which can be understood in more than just a temporal sense. Just as in the analysis of the uncanny from our previous series, where the experience was caused by the return of infantile states of thinking, or mediated through unconscious ideational content. So Freud seeks here to uncover the mediating factors between the subject of the experience and the experience itself. Put more simply, there has to be something that causes the oceanic feeling, just as there was in the experience of the uncanny. And this cause must exist within the subject themselves. Freud's argument is divided into two sections. Firstly, his initial thoughts, a kind of opening gambit. We're normally sure, writes Freud, that our own ego is something separate from the rest of the world. It appears to be autonomous and unitary. But psychoanalysis has shown that the ego itself continues inwards to an unconscious entity called the id without any clear and sharp lines of delimitation between the two. So the autonomous and unitary nature of the ego is, for Freud, a facade. Not only is the separateness of our own ego challenged from inside, but there are also occasions when we feel the breakdown of the boundary that separates the ego from the outside world. States of love threaten to dissolve this boundary, and the lover often declares, and to some extent even believes, that I and you are one. Pathological states also threaten the boundary between ego and outside. There are states, writes Freud, where parts of a patient's own body, and even thoughts and feelings, are experienced as alien to them and can appear to originate from the outside world. So our ego boundary is permeable, both in its relation to the inside and the outside. In the space of one paragraph, then, Freud has led us from the sublime experience of elevation and connectedness to states of illusion, of ego stability, through to states of delusion, paranoia. So, where the oceanic was once related to the divine, now it resides in the realm of pathology. The second part of Freud's argument is the properly genetic explanation, the fons et origio of the oceanic feeling itself. Here, Freud takes us back to the earlier stages of ego development. The infant at the breast does not distinguish between its ego and the outside world. This distinction only becomes established at the experience of pain or the absence of satisfaction. In the earliest stages of ego development, there is a tendency to separate off from the ego all sources of unpleasure. The outside is a threatening place of unpleasure whilst the ego becomes a pure pleasure ego, in Freud's words, incorporating everything that is pleasurable within it. It is under the influence of the reality principle that the ego's journey through its early stages of development, that these false positions are rectified. The crucial element of Freud's argument appears when he writes Originally, the ego includes everything. Later, it separates off an external world from itself. Our present ego feeling is a shrunken residue of a much more inclusive, indeed, and all-embracing feeling, which corresponded to the more intimate bond between the ego and the world about it. A quite extraordinary statement, I think. But if we follow the logic, we can see the correlation between Freud's analysis of the uncanny and the oceanic. If the source of the uncanny was a return of a stage of thinking that should have been overcome, then the oceanic would be the other side of the coin, the return of a sensation that our development should have left behind. The metaphysical dignity, then, of the experience, has now been categorised as infantile, as well as illusory and delusional. A devastating critique when you think about it.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that analysis, Tom. It's, It's in this text that Freud makes a famous archaeological metaphor of the mind, which he introduces by this rhetorical question, but have we the right to assume the survival of something that was originally there, alongside what was later derived from it? Undoubtedly. I'm going to read a passage now where he describes this metaphor of the mind. Bear with me, it's long, but it really paints a picture. And if you'd like to follow at home, it's in uh, Standard Edition 21 from page 69 to 70. This brings us to the more general problem of preservation in the sphere of the mind. The subject has hardly been studied as yet, but it is so attractive and important that we may be allowed to turn our attention to it for a little, even though our excuse is insufficient. Since we overcame the error of supposing that the forgetting we are familiar with signified a destruction of the memory trace, that is, its annihilation, we have been inclined to take the opposite view, that in mental life nothing which has once been formed can perish, that everything is somehow preserved, and that in suitable circumstances, when, for instance, regression goes back far enough, it can once more be brought to light. Let us try to grasp what this assumption involves by taking an analogy from another field. We will choose as an example the history of the Eternal City. Historians tell us that the oldest Rome was the Roma Quadrata, a fenced settlement on the Palatine. Then followed the phase of the Septimontium, a federation of the settlements on the different hills. And after that, came the city bounded by the Servian wall. And later still, after all the transformations during the periods of the Republic and the early Caesars, the city which the Emperor Aurelian surrounded with his walls. We will not follow the changes which the city went through any further, but we will ask ourselves how much a visitor, whom we will suppose to be equipped with the most complete historical and topographical knowledge, may still find left of these early stages in the Rome of today. Except for a few gaps, he will see the wall of Aurelian almost unchanged. In some places, he will be able to find sections of the Servian wall where they have been excavated and brought to light. If he knows enough, more than present-day archaeology does, he may perhaps be able to trace out in the plan of the city the whole course of that wall, and the outline of the Roma Quadrata. Of the buildings which once occupied this ancient area, he will find nothing, or only scanty remains, for they exist no longer. The best information about Rome in the Republican era would only enable him at the most to point out the sites where the temples and public buildings of that period stood. Their place is now taken by ruins, but not by ruins of themselves, but of later restorations made after fires or destruction. It is hardly necessary to remark that all these remains of ancient Rome are found dovetailed into the jumble of a great metropolis which has grown up in the last few centuries since the Renaissance. There is certainly not a little that is ancient still buried in the soil of the city or beneath its modern buildings. This is the manner in which the past is preserved in historical sites like Rome. Now, let us, by a flight of imagination, suppose that Rome is not a human habitation, but a psychical entity, with a similarity long and copious past, an, it, an entity that is to say, in which nothing that has once come into existence will have passed away, and all the earlier phases of development continue to exist alongside the latest one. This would mean that in Rome the palaces of the Caesars and the Septizonium of Septimius Severus would still be rising to their old height in the Palatine, and that the castle of S. Angelo would still be carrying on its battlements, the beautiful statues which graced it until the siege by the Goths, and so on. But more than this, in the place occupied by the Palazzo Caffarelli, which once more stand, without the palazzo having to be removed, the Temple of Jupiter Capitolonus. And this is not only in its latest shape, as the Romans of the Empire saw it, but also in its earliest one, when it still showed Etruscan forms and was ornamented with terracotta antifixes. Where the Colosseum now stands, we could, at the same time, admire Nero's vanished golden house. On the piazza of the Pantheon, we should find not only the Pantheon of today, as it was bequeathed to us by Hadrian, but on the same site, the original edifice erected by Agrippa. Indeed, the same piece of ground would be supporting the church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, and the ancient temple over which it was built. And the observer would perhaps only have to change the direction of his glance or his position in order to call up a new view or the other. Whew. What's going on here? Why had he provided this extended
1: and very detailed metaphor, Tom? Well, first of all, thanks, Jamie, for, for reading through that passage uh, in its entirety. It, it is a remarkable kind of extended metaphor, isn't it? It's so precise and descriptive. I think it also has a startling effect on the reading experience. Suddenly, in the middle of an analysis of the oceanic feeling, we're taken on a, on a detour, a winding and circuitous pathway through ancient Rome. It's reminiscent, again, of the passage in The Uncanny, I think, where Freud recounts getting lost in an Italian town. That passage was, you'll remember, very personal, almost poetic. This passage is very personal in another way, in a more studious, academic sense. Firstly, I think that Freud is betraying here a fascination that he shared with Nietzsche for the culture and civilization of the Mediterranean, the Mara Nostrum. And he also is expressing his lifelong fascination with archaeology, which is obvious to anyone who visits the Freud Museum and discovers the collection of antiquities crammed into his study. The archaeological metaphor of the mind The mind as an archaeological site. It's there from the very beginning of Freud's psychoanalytic work, appearing as early as 1896 in the etiology of hysteria. We can see it as a kind of master metaphor that helps to structure Freud's thinking. Not only does he profess to have read more books on archaeology than on psychology, but he also continues to refer to the archaeologist's craft, digging into the ground to discover hidden treasures in order to construct historical narrative around their findings. Just as the psychoanalyst digs into the mind of the analysand and constructs the truth of the symptom from the fragments of the past discovered in the analytic session. Throughout this passage, we can really see the libidinal cathexis the investment that Freud makes in the field of archaeology. And when we reach the end of the passage, it kind of almost feels like we've forgotten the purpose of this whole diversion. How are we to understand the general problem of preservation in the mind then? The whole topic is crucial for psychoanalysis. Indeed, the theory and practice of psychoanalysis really stands or falls on the possibility of the preservation of the past in the mind. The paragraph directly after the section you read, Jamie, runs as follows. There's clearly no point in spinning our fantasy any further, for it leads to things that are unimaginable and even absurd. If we want to represent historical sequence in spatial terms, We can only do it by juxtaposition in space. The same space cannot have two different contents. Our attempt seems to be an idle game. It has only one justification. It shows us how far we are from mastering the characteristics of mental life by representing them in pictorial forms. So despite the libidinal investment, the archaeological metaphor is shown in this instance to be a failed metaphor, a fantasy to be spun. Having attempted some other comparisons, Freud then comes to the following conclusion. The fact remains that only in the mind is such a preservation of all earlier stages alongside the final form possible and that we are not in a position to represent this phenomenon in pictorial terms. So we're moving here from the imaginary, which breaks down under the attempt to represent the mind, and into the symbolic, the field of scientific rigour, of psychoanalytic rationality. So,
0: so Freud determines from the archaeology metaphor that the past is preserved in mental life. what was the purpose of all this? Nearing the end of the first chapter, Freud returns to the oceanic feeling, saying, Thus, we are perfectly willing to acknowledge that the oceanic feeling exists in many people, and we are inclined to trace it back to an early phase of ego feeling. The further question then arises, what claim this feeling has to be regarded as the source of religious needs? To me, the claim does not seem compelling. How does, how does Freud deal with the oceanic and its relation to religion, then?
1: Well, Freud's stated topic, as we'll remember from the beginning of chapter one, is to discover whether the oceanic feeling can rightly be described as the fons et origio of the whole need for religion. After showing that the oceanic feeling is related to an early phase of ego feeling, he goes on to argue that it cannot be originary. For a feeling to be a source of energy, it has to be the expression of a strong need. And this need, according to Freud, is the infant's helplessness and longing for a father. A feeling that exists not just in childhood itself, but also later on in life, under the superior power of fate. So the oceanic feeling, which had threatened to flood the psychoanalytic critique of religion, is dammed up and contained within the parameters of the Oedipal dynamic outlined in the future of an illusion. The oceanic feeling, which would seek to restore the limitless narcissism of infancy, becomes attached to religion later on. It is, for Freud, the first attempt at a religious consolation. It becomes related to the promised satisfaction of the need for an omnipotent father that arises under the threatening force of the outside world. It can be traced to an infantile denial of the subject's helplessness in the face of the superior power of fate. So in one foul swoop then, Freud dismisses the claims of both the oceanic feeling and of religion itself. The match between Roland, the creator of illusions, and Freud, the destroyer of illusions, has ended in checkmate. After referring to conversations with another friend whose unusual experiments, encyclopaedic knowledge and practice of yoga has assured him of the physiological basis of the wisdom of mysticism, Freud decides to draw a line, or perhaps a veil, over the oceanic by quoting from Schiller, Let him rejoice who breathes up here in the roseate light. We began today's discussion with Romain Roland, and I'd like to draw things to a close by reading a letter sent by Freud to his friend and intellectual sparring partner, dated May 1931, just a year after the publication of Civilization and Its Discontents. Dear friend, writes Freud, you answered my pleasantry with the most precious information about your own person. My profound thanks for it. Approaching life's inevitable end, reminded of it by yet another operation, and aware that I am unlikely to see you again, I may confess to you that I have rarely experienced that mysterious attraction of one human being for another, as vividly as I have with you. It is somehow bound up, perhaps with the awareness of our being so different. Farewell, your Freud. A beautiful and moving letter, which I think helps to understand the curious, confusing and fascinating first chapter of civilization and its discontents. Almost a love letter to a dear and respected friend. But at the same time, a cautionary note to an errant, or perhaps a prodigal son.
0: Lovely. What a first chapter, Tom. Really. Next time we'll be joining Freud in the Roseate Light, looking into religion, the pleasure principle, happiness, and its limitations. I I can't wait. Thank you for tuning in to Freud and Focus with my co-host, Tom DeRose, and I'm Jamie Ruers. This episode was produced by Carolina Heller, and we'll be back in two weeks with the next episode. See you then.